Hello and welcome to another episode of the Moving Spotlight Podcast. We are here in the middle of Hollywood, the heart of it all. I'm John Ruby, your host. I'm here with... Corbin Coyle. Hey, everybody. Hey, everyone. We have an exciting show today. I can't wait to get to our guests. But before we get there, we always like to start on a topic that's fun and interesting so you stay engaged. Uh, and then you can check out after this. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do Stick it. around. This is a good one. <laughs> it gets better. It gets better after we stop talking. Um... Corbin, my question to you is, what city outside of Los Angeles would you want to live in for a year? Mm, outside of Los Angeles. And is this in the U.S. or is this kind of... Uh, it could be international, too. It could be anywhere. It used to be, I was thinking New York, but then I visited New York a couple years ago and I liked it, but I was like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't live here. I'm getting way too out of this, this kind of party zone. <laughs> like, it's just like a different atmosphere. Uh, yeah. I think, but I think probably Italy or something. I think I would go far away. I think I would go somewhere very mm. small and like quaint. That'd be like very beautiful. Um, I was just there uh, this year in Rome. So that was, oh, that kind of reminded me how much I love it over there. Uh, yeah. But like if I was staying in the U.S., it'd be tough. I love L.A. L.A. is like top. I lived in San Francisco for a little bit, and it was mm -hmm. it was nice. But I don't think I want to go back. Uh, yeah, I think it's got to be. I think it's got to be one of those two, or maybe somewhere in Canada. Just kind of get away from the states. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny about that that Italy thing. I was thinking kind of a similar a similar thing. Like I'd love to live on some little, in some little like small town on the coast in Italy, mm -hmm. but. I'd like it to have like a couple like Michelin star restaurants. You know what I mean? Like I, I still want some fanciness. You know, I was just thinking about that. Like That's I think funny. on chef's table. Yeah, like, they all so, do in Italy. <laughs> yes. They all do, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I think on chef's table season one, there was a guy, there was an Italian chef. I'm trying to remember his name is up, but like he, like some small little town, he's kind of like made the scene there. And, yes. you know, he's got his, um, uh, uh, who was it? If I can't remember. I can't. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Massimo Bottoro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Mod Mo Modena, 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 Italy. Anyways, that's I've never been there, but I was like, that's kind of like a little small, quaint place. Yeah, that sounds lovely. Um, I think that'd be lovely just, just to jump off that. And then I think for me, I know you're talking about cities, but I would love to live in Paris for a year. I just mm -hmm. really enjoy. I've, I've been in that city and, and it is a lot like New York in certain ways and just walking around there and I think like that movie Midnight in Paris yeah, sums yeah, up yeah. A, night, a night you can have in different cities. But I, I, I need really I need to go back to Paris. I went when I was 16. I didn't like it, but yeah. I think I was just too young. I was like in a city and was confused. <laughs> so I, yeah. I think I would, love oh, yeah. I would love to go back oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's like Santa Barbara. I've aged into Santa Barbara. I love that place now. You know what I mean? I was too young. I was like, what is it? Now I'm like, this place is great. This, place like, is this, is, this is on my wavelength. So well, that's um, Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, I love that. Great, great answer. I want to get to our guest. I'm super excited that he's here. This is yes. a big get for us, Corbin. This, yeah. is, this, is, this guy has um, been on a bunch of different shows, and you know, he's, he's a very smart individual. He's an entertainment and technology attorney and journalist. I want to welcome Jonathan Handel to the show. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Uh, great get for me as well. <laughs> it's Appreciate a double it. get. Jonathan, is there a city uh, outside the U.S. that you either have lived in or want to live in uh, at some point? Outside the U.S.? Well, you know, your question initially was outside L.A., and I was going to say West Hollywood. It's its mm. own city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I actually lived there. Um, you know, uh, Rome, Berlin, mm -hmm. Paris, London, um, Cities, all interesting city, cities mm -hmm. that I've uh, that I've visited at various times that uh, be interesting to live in. New York, uh, if I had the money and yeah, if yeah. I didn't have to live there during the uh, during the winter or the summer, I I grew up in the Northeast and uh, fled frigid winters and humid summers uh, <laughs> yeah. in order to you know, crime an atmospheric river. We're still dealing with uh, yeah. a lot of rain right now. 
Yeah, we we definitely are. And and yeah, people in the Midwest are like asking my parents, like, is John okay? And I'm like, if we had a little thunder and lightning, it would just be like a normal thunderstorm. <laughs> I mean, it is more than normal, but yeah. I, I know what you're saying. It definitely, this is weather. We're, we're, we're really having real weather here mm -hmm. in LA for once. There, there's never any weather in LA until there is, and then there's more than you can handle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah. Um, well, Jonathan, I want to, I want to jump in. I, you know, we, as in, when I say we, the, the SAG after union just went through kind of a big, a big strike, big contract negotiations. And, um, you know, one of the big topics on that was, uh, AI and you were telling us kind of right before the show, just about using AI to help write this children's book. And, and I, I want to save that for later, but how do you see AI and entertainment and, and, you know, kind of what is, what are your thoughts on that? And it's, I know it's a big topic. Well, it's a very big topic, and it um, was one of the drivers, one of the main drivers, as it turned out, of the dual strikes, the Writers and SAG yes. Guild and SAG After Strike, the, the first dual strike in Hollywood in 63 years, mm -hmm. uh, since 1960. Uh, you know, put to put a little bit of framework around it, the Writers Guild has board elections uh, and council elections on the East Coast uh, every year, and the September 2022 candidate statements, I, you know, so just before the rise of AI and before the negotiations, um, I scoured 150 pages of candidate statements, found only one candidate mentioning AI as a concern. And that was only in passing. Everyone was looking at streaming and um, mini rooms, writers' mini rooms and mm -hmm. uh, compensation levels and, you know, various other issues. And we, we would have struck in 2020, but you know, we're not for COVID and we have a lot of unfinished business. AI burst onto the scene, onto the scene uh, with a suddenness that, you know, just can't be, uh, you know, downplayed. And with that comes a lot of hype. Uh, there's a there's a lot of amazing ab uh, ability uh, in the software, but there's also a lot of hype. Uh, and what drives that hype is an internal momentum of that's really twofold. One is the enormous sums of money, venture capital in the in the uh, dozens of billions of dollars, and it's billions with a B uh, that is at stake and that is invested and being invested. Um, in fact, in 2022 which was, it was only the end of 2022 that the public became really uh, aware of chat GPT in a big way. And that mm -hmm. this you know, became a big meme, a big thing. Uh, but even in 2022, $50 billion worth of venture capital money was invested wow. in generative AI. So Silicon Valley was busy while the rest of us were doing other things. Um, the other factor that creates momentum here is of course, the press attention garners enormous numbers of clicks, uh, as we're hoping for with this podcast, with mm -hmm. today's episode, no, no, among others, mm -hmm. and you know, enormous audience attention. And so it's, you know, to put to put this in some perspective, we're talking about an issue that's 200 years old. Mm -hmm. 200 years old, not two months or two years old. Uh, and that is the role of the contrasting roles of technology and human labor in work. The, from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, 200, more than 200 years ago, people have been concerned, have been both excited that machinery will extend people's capabilities at, at work and at home and, and elsewhere, you know, throughout the, the world, um, and have been fearful of the effect on uh, human jobs, 
Will people be pushed out of work or will their work become easier, more powerful uh, as a result of what was at the time, you know, mechanical technology and now uh, has become, you know, became information technology some decades ago and now information technology uh, on steroids in the form of the latest iteration of AI. And it's also important to remember that AI, I, I was a computer scientist before law school uh, and worked in an earlier iteration of AI that turned out to be largely a dead end, uh, so-called rules-based AI, where there was an attempt to code uh, rules for practically everything. What What is a sentence? Well, a sentence can look like this, or it can look like this, or it can look like this. And mm -hmm. what is a noun phrase? Well, it can look like and a verb phrase, and a this, and a that, and an adjectival, and, and on and on. And that approach to language recognition and comprehension, let alone language generation, which was scarcely on the agenda then, uh, turned out to be unworkable mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a statistic neural network, statistical neural network approach, which is what uh, AI uses today. But even as early as getting computers in the late 50s, and well, as early as the invention computers in the 40s, they were referred to as, as electronic brains and they're going to think soon and surpass human capability. And then you know, fast forward 15 years later, the late 50s, early 60s, first work with getting computers to translate language, uh, you know, these, these amazing mechanical brains, electronic brains. And again, they're going to, they'll, they'll surpass human capabilities soon. And, you know, then you go to the 80s where uh, I had some, you know, minor involvement. And, you know, once again, we'll code everything in a rule and we'll be able to, to do this, that, and the other thing. So th this has been a the 80-20 the rule or 70-30 rule or whatever it might be that, you know, getting something to work sort of to some extent uh, is not nearly the same as getting it to work, you know, well. And that, you know, unlike a rear view mirror, objects in your forward vision sometimes are further away than they appear. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike the warning we've seen on passenger side mirrors in the past. Right. Um, it It simply... You know, I mean, this this takes us actually to the to the book that you alluded to, because I, one point I want to make is that the capabilities of generative AI are very different in different domains. Uh, we've been looking at chat GPT, you know, people look at chat GPT and they think, well, it's going to write screenplays the day after tomorrow mm -hmm. and novels and, you know, original news stories and this and that. And the reality is it writes very stiff sort of business acceptable language and does not really generate uh, at this point, you know, acceptable substitutes for stories. Um, I asked ChatGPT to write me a gay romance and it was, you know, dull as dirt. It was, you know, see dick run <laughs> and not in a good way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but then I, I had written um, the lyrics for a kid's song about who do you want to be when you grow up? And I realized if I spaced each occupation out on a separate page and had an illustration of that occupation, I could have an illustrated kid's book. Hmm. The only problem being that I don't know how to illustrate. I do know how to write uh, uh, lyrics and poetry, and I seem to be wired for rhymes. So I got uh, ChatGPT's next-door neighbor, Dali, D-A-L-L-E, mm -hmm. companion program from the same company, OpenAI, to do the illustrations. And if you go to who to be with a two, digit two and a letter B, dot kids, who to be dot kids, you can see some of the text that I wrote and a lot of the illustrations that the computer generated. 
Now, this is basically a hobby project. It would have been $15,000 worth of human illustration. I, I couldn't, you know, reasonably have done that. Um, I am, so I don't feel that I put a human illustrator out of work, but the training that generated these illustrations is done on human work and they don't pay the work, the million, probably millions of illustrations mm -hmm. that they trained on. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm giving 10% of the proceeds to a nonprofit, uh, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. But the point I would make is that the illustrations are really quite good. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not going to win an art award the way some okay, the occasional kids book do, but they're quite nice. Mm -hmm. they're, they're quite charming and delightful for kids and, and their parents. And the cost to me, rather than $15,000, $15, was about 60 cents. It was one, I, I did several hundred illustrations in less than 24 hours. I had a subscription price of $20 a month. Or the you know pro version of the AI, AI programs, so you piecework that out. I mean, that's a thirty thousand to one ratio mm -hmm. in cost. That's really that's the inexorable. I mean, there's no. The, what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. You can't you know look at that and say, well, that's not going to have an effect on the marketplace. By the same token, in writing, you can get a lot of written material out of Chat GPT, but. Not, you know, not useful screenplays at this point. Mm -hmm. And then in motion, in moving pictures, in video, um, what the actors are afraid of, you can't do what I did to get a still illustration. To get a still illustration, I said, a colorful illustration for a kid's book of a writer, mm -hmm. a king, a female lawyer uh, sleep snoring. Because my my verse there was uh, I could be a lawyer, but that's too boring. My mom does that, and she's always snoring. Mm. And, you know, I got some that were kind of boring, and I hit redraw and you know, redo, and then eventually I got one that was great. But the equivalent for motion pictures would be um, make a character who's six feet tall and blonde, and he's uh, muscular, and he's standing across the, on the other side of the street in L.A. Runs across the street, jumps into a Camaro. Uh, goes speeding down the road, gets chased by cops, hits a lamppost, bursts into flames, jumps into the L.A. River, swollen with rain to put out the, the flame, then swims downstream while the cops scratch their heads. Okay, you can't get do that mm -hmm. right now. The technology does not exist. And particularly if you want um, close-ups and you want that characters, that avatar's face to look realistic and the facial movements to look realistic, um, you want the body movements as a whole to look realistic. You're not trying to get a, 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 a you know, clunky, junky, uh, not junky, but uh, jerky, perky, jerky video game out of it. You're trying to get a movie footage that you can use, just like I used the the still images for this book. The technology is out there. When will it be there? I can't tell you. I mean, there are people who claim, uh, you know, who use the present tense and say, oh, this is being done now. Well, it's not being done now. Mm -hmm. And it may not be able to be done next year or the year after. In five Jonathan, years. let me let me ask hey, you something with that. Here's yeah. something interesting. So, so yeah. I feel like one of the things I remember hearing. So, and I want to tie this in with what you're saying, kind of to like negotiations and what happened and how to negotiate like around AI when you're saying like we don't, you know, it's not quite here, but it might be here. I, and, or might not, or might, or might not, might might be a long time. Yeah. Um, one of the things I remember hearing is that. Like uh, back in the day when SAG, when it was just SAG at the time, was negotiating DVDs, they didn't know what it was. And so they, they set the price point kind of low and for the actors. 
and then that price point stuck around and stuck around and you're never able to kind of negotiate it, off it, that it, okay, right the dvd issue um it, yes. it, it wasn't sag uh uh alone say okay. sag the writers guild and the directors guild and yeah. there's a little more subtlety to it but the, the the basic complaint and the basic uh issue in fact it was one of the secondary drivers of the 2708 writer's strike was that that formula never get got revised uh and and when originally uh it wasn't dvd at all it was it was vhs tapes which originally uh retailed for 100 bucks a piece and were expensive to manufacture you had to thread the tape manually and the 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 assemble, people who assembled it and you know then the cost of the tapes came down and then discs were introduced dvd initially now blu-ray and ultra hd to the extent anyone buys any of those and um the cost of stamping a disc of course was a lot less and then the cost got even lower now it's you know pennies a disc um there are counterexamples though um in 2007-08 the writers struck mostly over internet and the the jurisdiction and residuals and minimums and things like that and sag stalemated for a year and didn't accept the deal that the writers the directors uh and aftra did on internet issues so it was really a dual it was almost a dual strike but it wasn't quite a second strike um they worked under an expired contract and it turned out that what was that what was achieved bears no relation to what matters today because the thought was there would be webisodes and mobisodes little 15 minute episodes on mobile phones and on the web and there were all sorts of formulas introduced with those in mind well then a couple of years later Netflix introduces uh, streaming and it's full length, half hour, one hour and two hour movies, you know, full shows that you could watch, you know, at the time, mostly on your laptop and then eventually on television, but it's being transmitted by the internet. So in 2000, so what happened? Were we stuck with those formulas? No. In 2014, residuals formulas were introduced um, by the Directors Guild and adopted by the other two unions uh, for uh, what's referred to as high-budget uh, subscription video on demand, Netflix and similar systems. Those formula, not only that, as that um, medium grew and became more bigger and bigger, and ultimately, of course, it's basically swallowed the entertainment industry, um, was in the final stages of that. Those formulas were imp were obtained in 2014, improved in the next round in 2017, improved again in 2020, improved by the DGA without a strike in 2023. The Writers Guild then struck and improved on the 2023 DGA formula and got a better formula. SAG, SAG-AFTRA then struck and got an even better formula. So it's not necessarily the case mm -hmm. that what you agree to in one year is got to be perfect or else you're hosed. That's not the story of how uh, streaming residuals have worked. Now, are streaming residuals perfect? Are there problems? Of course, there are, there are problems. But the other thing to remember, a negotiation is not a shopping spree. You don't get everything you want. And you're when new technology is at issue, which is frequently what drives difficult negotiations and strikes, both sides are dealing with fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And the question becomes, what exactly is it that you think uh, the union could have done better? Let's take one example where SAG, SAG-AFTRA has been criticized, the current AI deal. Mm -hmm. One area is uh, that some people have criticized and, and urged a no vote, and they drove the percentage, the ratification down by about 10, 15 percent 
versus you know what it would have been otherwise um was the issue of completely synthetic actors okay in other words an avatar that's not based on someone's a particular person's appearance and now they're being animated using ai and other technologies but one that's completely synthetic and some people said it's terrible that SAG didn't get the studio, you know, force the studios to prohibit those altogether because they're going to compete with actors. And within less than no time, we were told actors will all be out of work and it'll all be these synthetic actors. There's only there's a couple problems with that, though. Number one, the fact that SAG after got anything in this area, what they got basically was that if the studios use completely synthetic uh, avatars, they have to notify SAG AFTRA they're doing so and you say well that's a pretty thin rule not not very much well the fact that sag after got anything actually is a miracle because there's no employment relationship when you're talking about uh something that's completely synthetic mm -hmm. uh, obviously it's a, it's a digital avatar and you say well so what well here's the so what unions have power only in the context of an employment relationship with a non-supervisor in this country, unions don't get to demand that studios do all sorts of other things that don't relate to the employment of particular individuals. Mm. So it's one thing to say in the AI that if you employ somebody on a movie and you want to scan them and then use them, you know, for the rest of eternity without paying them, that you can't do that. But the avatars, this the synthetic performers, the studios could have said to SAG-AFTRA, we're not going to talk about that. That's not a mandatory subject of bargaining. You can grouse about it publicly all you want, but if you try complaining to the National Labor Relations Board that we're not negotiating good faith, you know what they're going to say? They're say, not a mandatory subject of bargaining. You can't force the studios to negotiate on that. Hmm. But SAG got something anyways. That's hmm. number one. Number two, do you think it really was realistic that here's this technology that nobody quite knows when and if and how it's going to be possible to do this? Do you really think that the union had the power to, to get the studios to agree to, to never use this technology? Hmm. Did the union, would the unions have had the power, for example, in 1945 to get uh, companies to agree to, uh, to never show movies ever, ever on television because television is hurting the cinema business? The cinema business cratered at the end of World War II. A third of the country went to the movies every year in 45 and 46 that cratered and never recovered. Now, now people go to see four movies a year at best uh, in cinemas. Um, a union just doesn't, you know, there's a difference between wishing and wanting and being realistic. And you want a union to stretch and get the maximum reasonable that's possible. But you also, there also has to be uh, a degree of realism here. The Writers Guild, um, the Writers Guild got agreement that only, you know, written written material has got to be written by people. That's the way it gets summarized. But it's not quite right. Um, it's true that if the studio gives the writer a piece of written material that was written by uh, ChatGPT and says, revise this, that the screenplay has to be treated as an original new screenplay, not as a revision. And the, minute, the higher level of minimums in the Writers Guild agreement apply. But guess what? Most people who are screenwriters aren't paid the minimum. They're paid more. And there's nothing in the agreement that does or can stop the studios from saying, we're not going to pay you your usual 300000 for a screenplay. 
because you're not starting from a blank page. You're starting from what ChatGPT is generated for us that we're handing you. So we'll pay you the minimum. Yes, the minimum for an original screenplay, not a revision, but you will pay you 175 or whatever that minimum is today, not the 300 that you're used to. Not only that, a lot of what you loved about your job as a screenwriter was that we would say to you, we want you to do the new Spider-Man with a twist uh, that is on Mars, or we want you to do a romantic comedy and about whoever, you know, you come up with it. And a lot of what the writer loves is not only the six figure paycheck, but also the creativity involved. There's nothing in that writer's guild agreement that would stop the studios from turning writing into rewriting of Silicon bots and, mm -hmm. and leeching the love out of those jobs. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, let me ask you, when you talk about synthetic characters, are you saying Roger Rabbit isn't covered under the guilt? Because, you know, who framed Roger Rabbit? That guy is a character. The uh, voice the voice actor is covered. But that's true. Covered. That's true, but not the character. Well, there's a there's a whole there's a whole lot in there, Jonathan. And I was like, man, I was really enjoying that because I'm a I am really always interested in this idea of kind of the duality or of seeing both sides. You know, a lot of times it's very easy to be kind of myopic and say, this is the side I'm seeing. And I, and I really appreciate you kind of taking us uh, on both sides of the equation, which is great. You right. know, I, I do have, this is another question in this world, but a little bit to the side, which is, if you know this, do you know why the, the unions, like especially the WGA, DGA, and it's like, why they don't usually strike at the same time? Because I, I always feel like that's an advantage for the producers, it, like they like it that way. But is it, do you have any thoughts on that? The Writers Guild, the Writers Guild agreement, um, that led to the 0708 strike expired in November of 07, whereas the DGA SAG and after agreements expired mid year of 08. When the strike settled, the Writers Guild strike settled. The studios agreed to an expiration date in May uh, that's only, that's less than, slightly less than two months different from the expiration of the other two unions. That was a, a sign that management was so confident that the unions would never get on the same page and strike concurrently, that they were willing to agree to concurrent expiration. And it's a damning fact about the Hollywood unions that there is there has historically been uh, certainly over the last 20, 30 odd years or more, um, so much tension and mistrust between them that the bet that the AMPTP placed turned out to be a good one until this year, last year when it turned out not to be uh, such a good bet. And they did get a dual strike. Um, they came closer to a, to a three, to a triplex than they ever have. The DGA did not strike true to its nature. The DJ has only struck once in its history. And that, that was for uh, varying people say five or 15 minutes on this coast and three hours and five or 15 minutes on the East coast. Uh, that was in, I think, 87. But the the last time we'd had a dual strike, of course, was, was 1960, the writers and actors. Um, there have been historically, as historically have been fault lines and tensions between between the unions, uh, the primacy in, in feature films, the primacy of the director and the marginalization of the writer has had an effect on relations between the Writers Guild and the DGA. Um, the changing nature of the industry now with the rise of television at the expense of cinema, you know, has, has turned that on its head to some extent. 
Um, the writer's guild has been more willing to strike than the other two unions and certainly than uh, the DGA. The DGA is viewed as by some uh, as more accommodationist or even more uh, uh, to management or even more with greater denigration than that is essentially a company union, quote unquote, which is a phrase that means a, a union that's you know effectively controlled by management. I don't think that's a fair, uh, I, I think that's extreme. Um, but, you know, directors, film directors, who are the directors that historically have been more the most powerful members of the DGA, um, do occupy a management-like function, um, so much so that if the AMPTP were to want to, you know, go nuclear and challenge the very existence of the DGA, it's, it's, a, it's right to, to represent film directors, uh, the AMPTP would have a very strong case. You can't unionize. I mean, under American law, it does not recognize unions of supervisors. Hmm. Union, you know, and for example, in nurses, there are all these legal cases, you know, because you have nurses, supervisory nurses, super supervisory nurses. You know, at some point, the nurse is supervisory enough that she's not a member of the union that mm -hmm. she once was, that she now graduated out of, was promoted out of. Um, you know, likewise, editors. I mean, if you have the uh, the News Guild or the Writers Guild East representing your your reporters at a at a shop, and then you get I get promoted to editor, no, probably no longer a member of that union, no longer eligible to be. But showrunners, writer, producer, hyphenates in television, and directors in film uh, are you know that's an apple cart that the AMPTP has not tried to upset. Uh, another weird example is I write a spec script. Am I an employee? No. Employee of whom? I'm writing a spec script. I don't even know who's going to buy it. I'm not even a vendor because an independent contractor, because independent contractor of who? Again, you don't know if anyone's going to buy it or, and if so, who? You're just a, I'm just a peddler if I write a spec script. My, with the help of my agent, I've created a good, you know, like an apple. And now my agent's going out on the street trying to sell it. Mm. And yet, under certain circumstances in the contract and really, all circumstances by practice, the AMPTP companies will treat that as a union-covered uh, transaction. Jonathan, let me let me ask because you mentioned the AMPTP. From what I kind of heard, this and this is you, you know, correct me again because I'm really curious about this. It feels like the AMPTP has like professional negotiators, and then SAG-AFTRA has mostly volunteers. I know some are paid. No. Is that is that incorrect? That's incorrect. Um, the, so the AMPTP, let's start with the AMPTP, which is yes. the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is not an alliance of producers. It's an alliance of studios and streamers. Mm -hmm. uh, there are eight of them, the five legacy entertainment conglomerates plus Apple, Amazon, and Netflix. So like NBC, CBS. Class A members yep. of the AMPTP. Yep. They're the ones who actually do the negotiating. Um, everyone else who becomes a signatory is technically a Class B member, uh, even Lionsgate. Uh, for example, fairly big company, not as mm -hmm. big as the others, though. Um, let alone, you know, an independent uh, producer or or a hyper independent producer like a doctor in the Middle West who's financing a movie and wants to use SAG after actors will sign to the agreement on a basically take it or leave it basis. Mm -hmm. um, the AMPTP now, who actually what is what actually is physically the AMPTP? AMPTP, it is controlled by the eight studios who act through their labor VPs and ultimately when necessary through their CEOs and 
Last year, we didn't get a Writers Guild deal till the CEOs got hands-on. We didn't get a SAG-AFTRA deal till the CEOs got hands-on, which tells you something about the effectiveness of the alliance. Um, and the alliance itself is an organization that has a president, uh, Carol Lombardini, and she has um, uh, professional staff as to the as to the studios, labor VPs, uh, and their staff. SAG-AFTRA, uh, each of the guilds, actually, uh, operate in negotiations through a negotiating committee and through staff. So SAG-AFTRA had a, uh, I think, 40-odd person or so person negotiating committee. Um, it also had dozens of staff members. The staff members are lawyers and are professional negotiators and drafters. Uh, the negotiating committee members are, are, with one or two exceptions, are not lawyers and are not professional drafters. They're actors. Um, on the other hand, the staff members, with maybe one or two exceptions, have never been actors and never worked under these contracts. The negotiating committee knows what's going on on the ground because they work under the contract. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a complementarity of skill sets, of you know, personalities and attitudes and and you know different human natures uh, that has to work together. But no, the union is is very much uh uh the union negotiations very much involve professional negotiators as well as members i have a quick so i don't even know how to formulate this question too much but like with all the guilds and all of them how involved is everybody with their conversations and who's like the, somebody like you an attorney on the sag side like speaking with the wga and kind of coming to a consensus because it feels like the mtpt uh is basically their own they have their own force and that they're challenging everybody and nobody's on the same side for all the other guilds and i'm just wondering how those conversations the guilds, happen. The guilds and, and first of all i'm not i i don't sag was an outside client of mine actually from 2020 to 2022 but mm -hmm. i was not involved in negotiations yeah uh, just to uh to be clear and i also worked uh dec several decades ago i was on the legal staff of the writers guild but as it happens not during uh negotiating uh, uh time frame mm -hmm. Um, and, and to complete the picture, I routinely represent producers in win-win negotiations with the guilds, mm, like producers who owe residuals and are trying to figure out what they owe. Uh, it's a win for the guild. It's a win for the members. It's a win for the producer to have somebody who actually understands this stuff and who has relationships, you know, be able to help solve those things. Um, the, the unions talk to each other. Um, they will sometimes visit during negotiations uh, each other's negotiations and sit in, uh, you know, a few a few staff members. Um, the relations, SAG-AFTRA, as you know, is very factionalized. And without, without getting into, uh, you know, factional politics, the faction that, that controls SAG-AFTRA uh, today is, is viewed with more respect by the DGA uh, in particular than the previous... The other faction was and so there you know there are i i remember at one point uh being told by a sag aftra executive that i was going to have lunch with that they were running a bit late because they're trying to get down from uh sunset boulevard to where we're, the restaurant we were going to be at and i just sort of smiled and and said visiting the dga are we <laughs> and uh there was no direct answer to that but there didn't need to be you know so uh, they meet, they talk. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, each union, 
it's complicated because each union has a duty of fair representation, a, a duty mm -hmm. to its own members. So, for example, if if the DGA were to say, you know, what you offered to the studios, what you offered us on AI looks, you know, pretty much handles what 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 we need for our members, but it's not going to make the Writers Guild very happy. So we're going to, you know, or say the residuals provisions. So we're going to stand firm and demand more in residuals. You know, it leaves them open to a challenge from the studio side that you're not really bargaining in good faith. Your duty is to bargain for your members, not for somebody else's. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, an overlay to that, you can say, yeah, but if everyone, you know, was more on the same page, every all boats would rise yeah. on the labor side. Um, so it's it's difficult between the factionalism, between the politics within each union, which exists in the others as well, just more more extreme in SAG-AFTRA. And SAG-AFTRA, I mean, first of all, actors, you know, are the job selects for emotional intelligence and for focus on on making one's emotions known or making emotions known. And that's, um, you know, not always helpful in terms of organizational politics. Mm -hmm. It also is 10 times the size of the writer's guild and the director's guild. And so politics, you know, more naturally evolve uh, and, and, and become... Uh, you know, less become evident. Uh, the larger an organization is, just like the larger a country is. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the politics in a in a city, you know, in Hong Kong, uh, you know, people know each other. The politics in the United States, not everyone knows each other, and that makes it easier to demonize other people. It makes it easier for there to be dupli duplication of effort. Uh, the SAG board is larger. The board of directors is larger than the others, and was larger still. It's eighty members now, and it was. Uh, before merger was 120. I mean, you know, just un ungovernable size. So there are a variety of structural reasons uh, that you see, you know, SAG, WGA, DGA, they sound pretty similar. Mm -hmm. They're They're both similar and very different. I have just, a, this is something... I want to hear your opinion on we just with with unions, Jonathan, because I can tell you you've been in this world and you've thought about it. And it's this, the, like that, there are sometimes it feels like there's unions that serve different purposes. And what I mean by that is sometimes you hear about unions that are like trying to, like keep people that maybe aren't that great at their job in their job, like they're protecting like someone who's been around for a long time or something like that. And then I feel like the SAG after, now I know it's a guild, but like you're fighting for jobs and you're trying to protect against like abuse. And so, you know, or, 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 you know, producers taking advantage of people. Do you ever see that kind of, do you know what I mean? Like the difference in certain, in certain unions and kind of what their, what their goal is, or do you not, do you not make any type of distinction like that? Well, that they're, conf sense? they're conflicting goals. Uh, a union, uh, uh, and, and first of all, this issue of guild versus union versus uh, AFTRA, for example, before merger, did neither called it, you know, as a union, but it didn't have a union in its name or guild in its name. Right. They're all the same thing. They're all unions. Yeah. Um, except for the Producers Guild of America, which is not a union, even though it has guild in its name. There's no, <laughs> the only term with a legal meaning, really, well, even that, I mean, there's a union of concerned scientists, which is an anti-nuke organization. They're not a, they're not a trade union. Mm -hmm. So there, there isn't, um, a specific word that makes something a union. It has to be recognized as a union by management, by the NLRB. And it's recognized as a union by getting the votes 
in general by getting the votes of uh, employers at a at a workplace. Um, though what's interesting about the above the line unions is that the areas that they've already organized film and TV, scripted film and TV, narrative film and TV, um, you don't usually see resistance. You don't see someone saying, I want to hire SAG after actors and I'm not going to recognize the union. I'm going to make them have a vote. Uh, whereas when the unions are trying to expand their jurisdiction, like the IA is, uh, is had tried to get visual effects workers unionized, didn't work out too well in the mid teens, but now they're having success at that. Um, the companies are resisting. Uh, so there are votes just like there would be a vote if a new steel company was set up and, uh, the steel workers union was trying to unionize that, that factory. Um, and, you know, with a majority vote, it's recognized, you know, uh, as a union, and then the company has to bargain, uh, you know, has to negotiate. Um, unions, I think of unions as non-governmental regulatory agencies, because they, the, the guilds in Hollywood, you know, the unions and guilds in Hollywood, they do have a credentialing function. You assume that someone, if someone's in SAG-AFTRA, that they... Uh, or in Actors' Equity, that which is the Stage Actors' Union, that they've got some level of skills that are greater than someone who's not. But there isn't really, you know, there isn't a requirement that you prove a certain skill level. Um, the closest to that, I would say, would be the Writers' Guild, where if you don't do a certain amount of covered work within any given, uh, three, I think, three-year period, three- or four-year period, that you then fall down, fall back and become an associate member. You can't stay a full member, mm -hmm. unlike SAG-AFTRA, uh, where you just have to pay your, your dues every year. And if you don't do any covered work, you pay the minimum dues, which is, you know, 175 bucks or something like that. And AFTRA, you could join, to join uh, before merger, it just took an initiation fee. Um, to become a member of IOTC, of the union that represents most crew, um, you have to have done a certain number of hours of work of covered of, of, of work in the field that you are then trying to become a member of. Um, I, you know, sag out the, the above the line guilds are not so much focused, I would say on trying to keep people in a job due to seniority, which is, you know, what can generate some of the concerns that, that you raised, um, mm -hmm. you know, you have a, teacher who's very senior and perhaps is no longer, you know, giving their all. And meanwhile, who gets laid off first, the younger one who's, you know, 25 and right out of, uh, you know, teacher's college and is enthusiastic and bonds with the the high school kids more than, you know, someone in a different generation. And, you know, so there, are, as with any regulatory agency, it's a human endeavor. We, owe, we simultaneously, we get it wrong. We simultaneously overregulate and underregulate. Mm. There are always going to be examples. The mm. the FAA and Boeing, you know, with doors that go bursting at, at the seams in midair, um, you know, clearly not enough regulation of the right sort there. Mm. <clears throat> the medical, I mean, we saw, you know, the FDA. We we saw people, you know, deformed babies uh, due to thalidomide in the early nineteen sixties. And that uh, led to a strengthening of the FDA and uh, a slow walking the introduction of drugs in this country to be safe. Um, but then during the AIDS crisis in the 80s, 
we saw people dying. And as the 80s turned into the 90s and experimental drugs started to become available, we had the FDA saying, no, even though people are dying and it's their last possible hope, we need a three-year study on this drug to make sure it's safe before. And, you know, so that got moderated and adjusted to compassionate use kinds of exceptions and 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 things of that sort. So, you know, in the union field, you know, the field of the Hollywood unions are the things that the unions do that are over-regulated and things that they do that are under-regulated. Yeah, I, I think that there are. I, I don't see so much of the, you know, the, the example that you gave about, you know, seniority, but, you yeah. know, producers will complain that uh, SAG-AFTRA takes, uh, you know, they take a, if you're an independent producer, they take a bond, a deposit, a security deposit to make sure that the cast gets paid and their, their salary. And then it takes a long time to get that uh, bond refunded. And meanwhile, the independent producer has to be able to finance not only the cost of production in total, but an extra bump, because while that money, that, that deposit, that bond that goes to SAG-AFTRA is not used to pay the actors. It just sits on a SAG-AFTRA trust account. And the producer has to have raised enough money above and beyond the budget of the picture to pay the actors week by week. Now, I look at that and I wonder, well, why not engineer a system where it goes into a SAG-AFTRA controlled bank account and, and is used for its purpose, which is to pay the actors to eliminate that, that difficulty is already difficult enough to finance independent pictures. Mm -hmm. And then you get, if you eliminate that difficulty, you'll get more pictures that are able to be financed, which means more work for the members. Mm -hmm. I don't really know why this system, that aspect of the system is the way it is, but it, it, it angers independent producers enormously. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, light just hasn't been shown on things in a sense. And like you're saying, there's, there's, there's parts that are, it doesn't even make sense. And it maybe hasn't been been thought through. I, I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, if, if you were following this, but, you know, they always talk about, you know, read your contract and, and, and pretty much no one ever reads the SEG after contract, even though they should. But then someone that I know went through it with kind of a fine tooth comb. And then it turned out that in our old con or in our contract, we were supposed to be paid to audition or that was kind of the feeling. It was kind of like found maybe, maybe not. And I just was curious, did you, did you follow that at all? Yeah. I, I know Sean yes. quite well. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, did yeah, you have Sean Sharma? Yes, yes, yes. Sean and Charlie. Did you have thoughts? And Charlie. On, on I, I know Charlie. Yeah. Charlie quite well. Charlie is putting his marriage at risk by, by spending so much time delving into old uh, contracts. Like, yeah. like, Charlie, make sure that your wife is still happy. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's the, it, it, it's, it's very complicated. Um, mm -hmm. The agreements, the, the reason that we have unions in this, in this gig based uh, uh, industrial sector to begin with, because you're like, well, you know, these, I mean, actors, you go, you work on one job for a few weeks, you work on another for two days, you work on some commercials, a commercial for a day, you work on this. It feels like gig base. It feels like you're an independent contractor, but you're an employee because you're unionized and vice versa. And you're unionized, you can be unionized because you're an employee. And, you know, and you end up with a pile, not of 1099s at the end of the year, but of W-2s. Um, there are very few uh, other uh occupations in the country, maybe um, mm. construction workers, and, and maybe not even that, and I can't think of really others, where people end up with, you know, dozens of W-2s. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, oh, my, my accountant at the end of the year hates me. He's like, <laughs> what? Or she, he or she, whatever you, I have to get new ones because they're like, what I, they're like, I have a, I have a lot of uh, W2s and I used to do casting where you get like 1099s a lot, Jonathan, real quick. I, and so I'd bring, and then I'd be like, I have a lot. And they're like, okay, that's fine. I bring them in. They're like 20. No, no, no. So, yeah. Well, you need, you need to, you need to find an accountant who, who, who works with actors regularly. Yes, yes, exactly. They are used to it. And, yes. um, you know, and Trump and the Republicans incidentally in 2017 in the tax uh, revisions um, made a change that I think affects primarily uh actors, writers, and directors, and, and no one else that I can think of on Moss in the economy, which is when you have expenses, if when I when someone who's an independent contractor has expenses, they take their gross from 1099s and 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 other gross, they subtract their expenses, that flows into their taxable income and on it goes. But when you're an employee, you, if you're an actor, writer, or director, or independent producer, um, you've got expenses, even though you're an employee, you have unreimbursed expenses. So for example, 10% um, of your income gets paid to your agent. Now you might not think of that as an expense because you never even see the 10%, but it is an expense. It's taken off your gross. 5% mm -hmm. um, to your lawyer, potentially 10% uh, to your manager. Uh, if you've got a personal manager as well, uh, money to your business manager, if you're making enough money that you need a business manager to handle your, you know, your economic affairs, um, money for headshots or for a website or both, um, all of these things. Um, prior to the 2017 tax changes, there was a form, I think 2106, um, for employee, for unreimbursed employee business expenses that you could deduct these things on. Now you pay taxes on the money you never see that your agent takes. Thanks to the Republicans and Trump who, you know, talked about how they were in favor of the little guy, the little person. Um, I did an article with Hollywood Reporter on that where I actually ran some of the numbers and it's, you know, it's devastating. Um, now people who, actors who are wealthier or writers or directors uh, set up loan outs, they self-incorporate. And a loan out corporation was not affected by that change. Independent contractors, Schedule C, was not affected by that tax change. Only employees. Now, think about it. If you're a computer programmer, software architect, make two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, you have all sorts of expenses. You fly to conferences. You might subscribe to some journals that the, the company library doesn't subscribe to. Whatever. Um, the company pays for those things. If you're on the other hand, earning minimum wage at a fast food restaurant, you potentially have expenses in terms of your uniform that has your name on it and the and the laundering of the uniform every week or whatever. Well, the company pays for that too. Mm -hmm. Who is it among that is an employee, but that has significant employee business expenses? I can't think of anyone other than the actors, writers, directors, to some extent, um, you know, uh, below the line folk to some extent, producers. What would you think would be the change needed for that? Is that just simply- To restore the form. Yeah. The form, you know, or and or a, there was also a separate line in the tax form that worked a bit the same way, but had never been indexed for inflation. And so hmm. it only worked if your total earnings were like, I think $15,000 a year or less, which was, so it didn't work for anybody. <laughs> um, 
But that line specific to the performing arts or restoring the form, at least for the performing arts, mm. um, I, I thought it was a, it was a terrible change because it meant, you know, so you're, you know, you make 80,000 a year as an actor, um, not enough for it to be worth the expense and the difficulties involved in setting up a loan out, but you pay, but 8,000 of that goes to your, uh, you know, I mean, something like 25% of that probably goes to your various representatives and, and expenses. So mm -hmm. that's $20,000. You're paying tax on $20,000. You're probably paying, you know, two, $3,000 worth of tax. Now for a lot of people, two, $3,000 more in tax, they can live with it. But if you're making $80,000 and you're living in New York or Los Angeles, most likely, two of the most expensive cities in the country, that's difficult money to have to give up to the government mm -hmm. because of a tax change that no longer recognizes the expenses that you have that you can't deduct because you're not an independent contractor. That's a Friday night and Saturday night dinner for me. <laughs> I uh, would hope it's a very nice dinner for you and your friends. <laughs> but I know, look, I know people on the executive side where that is a Friday night yes, dinner for yes, a bunch yes. of yeah. No, you're you're 100 right. But I and I want to just circle back, Jonathan, to the paid to audition thing because we didn't get yeah. To it we, I, we so, got, but, well, but my yeah. my response to that is that yes, you can't assume that language that is you know 60, 80 years old that was adopted in a different era when you had the studio system, when people did have mm -hmm. normal looking jobs, mm -hmm. you were under contract with Metro, as they would say, MGM, right? Mm -hmm. You went into work every day at Metro or Paramount or wherever you were under contract. It was a dated a, a job, mm -hmm. the way being a, you know, an actor. I mean, even if you're an actor in television, in network television, it's 22 episodes. It's, you know, 35, 40 weeks of the year. It's not quite the whole year. It's not it's the, even that, which is not so gig based, is not, you know, if you're a series uh, regular, mm -hmm. is not the same as what it once was. And the meaning of the words, uh, there, there's a discussion. The language includes the word interview as well as audition, and it distinguishes between them exactly what those mean, what the custom and practice were how things came to change as it became a gig based and finally what is doable uh in today's world uh and sean took a hardline position that this means must mean what it said what it seems to say and that we must treat it as doable and we have to demand and if necessary strike over and getting paid for every audition now you know people don't people don't normally get paid in the larger economy don't normally get paid for uh, job interviews, uh, for, for interviewing for a job. Now, I I have con greater concern with um, virtual interviews, virtual auditions, and uh, and self tapes, because there there has been a shifting of expenses mm -hmm. onto the actor. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to get the exact right take. You want to you know you you hire somebody at seventy bucks a hour or whatever the going rate is. Uh, to be your camera person and to be and to read the to read sides opposite the side the the role that you're auditioning for and to help you edit or to do the editing um and of course your apartment is a space where you're doing the um the virtual audition uh meaning that the casting director is no longer renting office space 
mm-hmm. meaning that the casting director can charge the producer less. Um, there are, as I as I wrote in November, I think of 2022, there are a couple of uh, California statutes that arguably apply and that prohibit potentially prohibit some of the cost shifting that's uh that's going on and the union's approach as i understand it and as i look at it has been to try to ameliorate some of the worst aspects of abuses in the you know in 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 the in the area but it's it's a very hard it's ultimately a very hard equation because mm-hmm. you're spending more and more people are auditioning because you can audition from anywhere in the country or the world it's not oh we have an audition in LA in four days oh well I'm not going to fly to LA from New York to for an open call or whatever um and so more people are auditioning they're each spending more and more time because you're like well that take was pretty good but not quite right I'm going to try it again and try it again try it again um and they're doing that and spending money um to do what to compete for a job that they're even less likely to get than they would have been when it was only 30 people that you were auditioning against, you know? So yeah, you don't drive across town. You don't sit in a waiting room with 30 other people that look just like you only better mm-hmm. in your mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead it's the, you know, it's the agony of, it's the agony and the ecstasy of the internet. Meaning the good news is, even if you're in New York, you can compete for the job. The bad news is, even if you're in New York, in New York you can compete for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a hard problem. But I think that, you know, yeah. I this the argument that Sean made, we saw also before merger, when people were uh, from one faction were saying, you know, we should just sue AFTRA. There are NLRB, National Labor Relations Board decisions and, and, and interunion documents from 1952, when they were still struggling between SAG and AFRA, which was a radio union only, and the TV authority, very grandly named thing to try to figure out. Uh, and there's an umbrella organization called the Four A's that also encompassed uh, Actors Equity and other, and AGMA and AGVA. Uh, and they were trying to figure out which union would get jurisdiction over TV. And, you know, they eventually they agreed that SAG would get jurisdiction over filmed TV because SAG was the actor for was the union for film actors and afra was the union for electronic broadcast so they would get you know live and videotape and you know all we have to do is show a judge these papers these agreements from 1952 and these nrb decisions and the judge will immediately declare uh after out of bounds in terms of the representation that's making in cable tv and stuff that's that's we find uh aggravating here in sag well Sorry, guys, it doesn't work that way. It's There's no automatic 50 years ago. Now, does it sometimes happen? I mean, yeah, you see anti-abortion laws that were 150 years old that suddenly, that were never taken off the books, but that were dormant during Roe versus Wade, that now you, you have litigation going to state Supreme Courts as to whether that law that never left the books uh, now prohibits abortions. Uh, you know, what do you do with a 150-year-old law? But the idea that you could automatically, as a slam dunk, uh, just go into court and, you know, in less than no time, put after out of its misery uh, or out of one's own misery, really, 
uh, or that it'd be a slam dunk to get uh, compensation and to suddenly have the studios paying what would probably be hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation for every audition. It, it's not realistic. It's not, the law is not just what's written on paper. It's also how judges behave and what judges think and how lawyers think. And um, the law is not always as predictable mm. as, as people assume, especially non-lawyers who haven't been through different iterations and seen things play out exactly the way you expected and seen things play out in ridiculous deviation from the way you expected. Well, Jonathan, I mean, thank you so much yeah, thank just you. for kind of having the knowledge about what's going on in the present. And then what I also really appreciate is kind of the history mm -hmm. that you seamlessly tie in really. Like, I think that's one of the wonderful things that I, I just keep, tend to appreciate more and more is kind of seeing the lineage and seeing the history, whether it's, you know, through actors journeys going back or whether it's just through the history of entertainment or whether it's how, you know, lawyers and the DJ and the WGA and the studio, like how they've kind of interacted and how it's evolved or changed. I think it's such an interesting, you know, to have that um, perspective. You know, you know I'm very, I'm very yeah. lucky in, in the variety of experiences that I've been able to have uh, that have that. And I sort of draw on all of them when I look at, at, at guild matters the uh the degree to which uh guild members from all the guilds have shared their experiences when they sometimes angrily you know and and disagreeing with perspectives i've i've taken or things i've written and not, other times not but all of it is helpful uh i come from an academic family i've taught as an adjunct professor uh teaching a unions and guilds course at ucla usc and southwestern law schools and i'm a non-resident research fellow at uh Rutgers University for based on work that I've done about uh, residuals, including the history of residuals, which when I finally have written up what I, the academic article that I'm working on in that, we maybe we'll come back and talk about just specifically how residuals, which are now almost $3 billion a year across all unions, how that evolved from a very tiny idea. Um, I was a math and science kid. I was a computer scientist. Um, I was involved in local and gay politics. Uh, prior to law school, and uh, it's all it's all been helpful, uh, and the creative writing that I've uh, that I've started doing uh, as well, and you know, so I'm a little bit of a uh, practitioner, at least on a avocational basis. Well, Jonathan, you're able to make that <clears throat> web and connect all those things. I mean, mm -hmm. not everybody can do that, and not everybody <laughs> can dive into those different things. <laughs> And 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 have knowledge and expertise in that world. So, kudos to you because really, like that is impressive. And you've mm -hmm. got that history. You mentioned math back in the day. I did want to say I was part of the math counts team a long time ago, <laughs> Jonathan. Now I was the alternate, so there was four main members, and then there was quite a drop off, and then there was me. So no, we, no one wanted anybody to get sick because if I had to be on the top, <laughs> there, it would have been rough. So well, I was so, I was a member of the math team, and I. I never got an A in high school math because I only got A pluses. And <laughs> I did a and a true story. And I did a year, finished a year of math in a weekend because I was bored with the class. So, oh, wow. I, oh my gosh, that doesn't. And and I've been. I will tell you two occasions where it's where it's come in handy uh, in the guild world. Uh, one is last year, the AMPTP announced that their offer to SAG-AFTRA at one point during the summer was worth a billion dollars billion dollars 
a lot of money. They made a big deal out of it. Um, and I thought about that money for a bit. And I thought, well, that that would be an awful lot of money if it were in my bank account. Uh, but I don't think that's in the cards. So let's take a look at something else. Um, it's a three-year deal. So this was the value of the additions to the existing contract that mm -hmm. this was the studio. And, and the union said it was only 750 million, not a billion. But let's take, let's call it a billion for the sake of the studios. It's a three-year deal. So that's 333 million a year. And there are eight negotiating companies in the AMPTP, plus the economic equivalent of another two or three companies, all the independent producers and Lionsgate and this very independent. And 333 million divided by, say, 11, that's only 30 million a year. So I called the publicists for the AMPTP that they had hired during the, during the strikes. And I said, you know, this billion-dollar offer that you've been touting, it's less than the companies pay their CEOs each year. Hmm. Am I missing something? Is my division wrong? Is there a comment that you'd like to make? And they said, well, we have no comment. That is second-grade arithmetic. Mm -hmm. It's just two divisions in a row. Mm -hmm. But by thinking about data as about numbers as data, and then asking questions about what lies behind them, I ended up quote not only did I write that in Puck, that he wrote the article in Puck, but uh, got quoted in the New Yorker. And I to this day I smile and kind of laugh. I got quoted in the New Yorker for second grade arithmetic, <laughs> a Harvard applied math degree, but it didn't factor into this. The I other, yeah. the other element in twenty, the the complaints that the writers were making about uh, these mini rooms and getting underpaid in streaming and stuff didn't start in 2023 or even 2020 when they would have struck were it not for COVID. They started, the grumbling started in 2017, which was only about five years after Netflix had, you know, started doing streaming. And people, people's reaction was, you know, what are you people, crazy? I mean, this is peak TV. There's so many new series that, you know, television critics are at risk of committing suicide. They can't keep up. But I asked a question in my guise as Hollywood reporter, a uh, reporter for the Hollywood Reporter, that no one else had asked, which was, yeah, we know there are lots of new series. FX puts out a graph every year, bright colors, and it just keeps going up, uh, at least until 2022 was the peak. Uh, now it's we're not in peak TV anymore. Um, but we also know that the seasons are getting shorter. So I asked, how many episodes of scripted television are produced in a year in this business. So I called FX and I said, you know, do you happen to have episode data? Guy screamed at me. I'm like, dude, dude, just asking. I got data at a place that might sound unexpected, but I figured I would be able to, and I was right. The Bunch, B-U-N-C-H-E, African-American Studies Center at UCLA. Now, the reason I figured they could give me episode counts by platform type was that they published reports every few years where they look, they where they actually watched every episode of scripted television and coded them for racial representation. Mm -hmm. So I figured all I wanted was a count of you know raw numbers. Well, what I found was they they were able to give me a four year time series from 2011 to 2015. In that period, that by their count, the number of scripted series 
had gone up by 50%, shot up 50% increase in four years. And the FX data was, you know, give or take a couple of digits, was, it was the same 50% increase. Writers Guild data said that the number of writers working who made any money in scripted television, other, any initial comp, leaving aside residuals, had gone up by 20% in that period. So first you think, wow, 50% more series, only 20% more writers. This is good for labor. There must be high demand. You think it would push prices up, right? But the number of episodes in that same period, or the number of series had gone up by 50%, the number of episodes had briefly dipped. And at the end of four years, was only up by 6%. Because the shortening of, the se of series had happened faster than the growth in number of series. Mm. It's the multiplication of the average, num the average length by the total number. Again, second grade arithmetic. The article that I wrote, I mean, that was the problem. Essentially, that writers are hired by the series, but paid, very roughly speaking, by the episode. They're paid by the week and by the script that they write and by their minimum guarantee and things like that. But it correlates roughly to the number of episodes in the uh, in the season. You don't get a you know a, uh, an eight episode guarantee if there only are six episodes, right? Mm -hmm. That's the creature of a twenty two episode series. And so there's this fundamental disjunct in the labor market. You're hired based on one metric, number of series. Each series wants its own writers and the scheduling conflicts and whatever. But they're paid by the amount of work available. And the amount of work available per series was shrinking fast. Mm -hmm. That article went viral in five minutes, according to our TV people, among showrunners, because no one had looked behind the raw data and the bubbly exuberance of peak TV, which you guys, I'm sure, will remember, you know, oh, as sure. the numbers just got bigger and bigger and bigger, all these new shows to check out. But then work That's available was you know, was not keeping pace. So interesting, Jonathan. <clears throat> and it's interesting asking the right questions mm -hmm. leads to some inter interesting answers. Right. You know, and I, and I, that's really insightful. And it, it, it is that kind of picking below the surface that you can kind of find out stuff and think about stuff because <clears throat> you're right. If you asked me, I'd be like, oh yeah, there's a lot more episodes. But when you say, you know, let's say a series, let's say a CSI had 24 episodes or whatever, 22 in a season, and then Stranger Things has like six or mm -hmm. eight or something. Well, that's four seasons, which, you know, they, they've spread out over six years or something versus right. one, you know, eight month chunk where they're going to shoot those 24 episodes. So, you know, you're, you're it's mm -hmm. a great, it's a really interesting. The season length, yeah, the season length, the average season length across all platforms had plummeted from, from 19 episodes in 2015 to if I remember correctly, 12 or 13, mm. four years later. Mm -hmm. That's an enormous amount of wow. change in an industrial sector in just four years. It's as though everyone stopped ordering 40-foot I-beams and was ordering 20-foot I-beams or something. <laughs> I mean, and all of a sudden the market, you know, just complete for steel, just completely changed. Well, Right. It's like, we're selling more I-beams. You are, but you're kind of selling the same amount. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, right. Or maybe yeah. you're selling yeah. fewer. Yeah, or yeah. Fewer, I mean, yeah, it actually had yeah. dipped at one point, and it was it, it was mind boggling. That's, um, that's interesting. So, yeah, I, you know, data, both qualitative data, quantitative data, and qualitative attention to what to anecdotal data are the the only way to the you know to to fully understand you know something. You have to listen mm -hmm. to people. 
but you have to also look at the data and see what it, see what you can peel back and see what it tells you. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always try to keep in mind, most people are a little, are over indexed for their own experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they take their own pathway and that kind of overshadows a lot of stuff. I always think about that because it's like, that's their point of view kind of overshadows. And so it's always interesting to hear that, but kind of like you're saying to factor in other things because that's just their kind of point of view a lot of times. I mean, maybe it's based on other things, right? Most most writers and actors are saying that their residuals checks are getting lighter, have gotten lighter over the last five or eight years. And yet the aggregate amount of residuals across all the unions has in has steadily and sometimes more more strongly increased every year from 2000 to the last uh, data that I looked at was a couple of years ago. In fact, it's increased faster than inflation. Mm -hmm. the, the aggregate amount of residuals have increased about over 5% a year uh, during that period uh, or 3% and change adjusted for inflation, which suggests that if you give credence, as I do, to the anecdotal reports, mm -hmm. that the pool of residuals recipients is increasing even faster than the total amount of residuals mm -hmm. because that's one of the only ways to square the circle to square those two those two pieces of data the other would be if the allocation formulas had changed and was now favoring a smaller number of people but right. but that i don't believe there's evidence for that well jonathan this has been a lot for for my brain to crunch on <clears throat> i'm gonna need a nap after this um and all this has been wonderful i really really appreciate it these are kind of some questions that have been kind of building up in my brain and and i think a lot of actors have questions and sometimes they don't know who to turn to and you know thank you so much for your informed informative mm -hmm. a answers i like i i really really appreciate it um we're definitely we're, you're you're coming back. You're our resident expert. We don't have any, so I mean you're kind of by default, but also it's an honor. So you are the new resident expert, um, Jonathan. Because we're kind of hitting our our time limit for yeah. an episode, uh, we 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 want to value your time and our time, but we can't get you out of here without one final thing. Okay, <laughs> the, to end episodes, we do something called your, your best, best bad bad acting. acting. Okay, <laughs> so Jonathan, we pulled a quote from a movie. You're gonna know it. It's real short because I know. Uh, I don't know when the last time you acted was, so we gave you one that's that's a fun one. And the idea is you can have fun with this. We might give you a little direction on it, but the point is just to kind of have fun and and be loose with it. So if you take a look in the chat, it should be there. Did, did you find it? <laughs> you know, I was going to do uh, one of my own. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, oh, I like oh, it. Oh, all right. Yeah, let's do your own. Let's do your own. Even better. Let's do it. Yeah. Do so it. the um, the kids book we talked about earlier is called Who Do You Want to Be? Yep. And I'm an associate member of the Society of Composers and Lyricists, and I wrote okay. the lyrics. And the first few verses go like this. Let's hear it. <clears throat> One day my best friend said to me, who in the world do you want to be? I thought and thought and thought and said, maybe a fireman because their trucks are red? I don't know. That's just a bad reason. Maybe a chef because they cook in season. I could be a lawyer, but that's too boring. Mom does that, and she's always snoring. I could be a writer. My pop likes to write. His words always rhyme, but he works through the night. I could be an influencer or even a brand, but that's really something I don't understand. I could work at a factory and do shift after shift, 
but I'd rather sell neckties or drive Uber or Lyft. And it goes on that vein. Ooh, yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Jonathan, that was great. That was so great. Um, so unexpected. I, love I loved it. it. It was so great. That's a, so such good. a beautiful so good. That's, and that's in the book? That's in the mm -hmm. book you wrote? Or is that, is that part it's of the It's in book? the book. That, that became yeah. the text of the, of the book. Beautiful. And in, in memoriam for my car, yeah. which is now, now needs too much. It's a 25-year-old SLK, mm -hmm. bright yellow, two-seat Roadster hardtop convertible that needs too much in the way of repairs, so I've had to buy a newer car. Uh, <laughs> I will leave you with a poem that popped into my head when I was driving to dinner one day. Ooh. It took me longer to come up with a title. But the title is Yellow Roadster. And it goes like this. I leave the house like a bat out of hell, fly down roads that I know so well. My SLK hugs every curve as I zip along with style and verve. I'm en route to sushi. So if you ask me, I'd rather be driving than swim in the sea. Mm. <laughs> I love it. So uh, Jonathan, a man of more hats than I can name. Oh. This is amazing uh what a what a great what a great um episode hey corbin yes so great thank you for being here this thank is, you guys this, this was wonderful really it was it was a pleasure having you and it's it's really cool to see the knowledge you're sharing with me sharing with corbin uh though corbin and i are about the same age we're from a different generation <laughs> uh, no but it's wonderful jonathan and i think that's really a cool thing that that we that people can connect uh and connect the history connect what's going on and and just connect your knowledge because it really is wonderful to learn all this stuff so uh jonathan thank you for being here we really appreciate it and you know uh thank you for stopping by enjoy the rest of your day thanks you too guys thanks Tom. awesome wonderful Bye. thank you for listening to the movie spotlight podcast